Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We look at the health impacts of sport, whether it be shaving and gaining a few extra seconds of your life through skiing, as well as the cardiac implications of watching a sport, and, well, what can we do to stop doping and how widespread is it? To sports-mad countries like Canada, hockey is more than just a national sport or pastime. It's akin to a religion. And look, here in Australia, we can certainly relate. Particularly in the city of Melbourne, we have not just one, but multiple sport religions, whether that be AFL in the winter, cricket in the summer, soccer all year round, and some odd people who are fascinated for some reason by rugby union south of the border. But some recent research published in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology have been looking into what the actual physiological effects are of following a very tense and close game of a sporting event. And of course, like any Canadian science would be looking at, if they had to pick any high-tension, high-stress activity to watch, it's obviously about a hockey game. And recently, the Canadian hockey team have, well, suffered a pretty sad result in the Olympics, which even led to the German embassy issuing a warning of warning and advice to any Germans likely to encounter a Canadian after their surprising loss to the German national hockey team. So what exactly did these cardiologists discover? Armed with Holter monitors, which are a type of heart rate monitor, a team of researchers set out to study the effects of hockey watching on the spectators themselves. Not the people getting punched or smashed or cut on the ice, but the people sitting in the crowd at the game itself. In particular, Montreal Canadiens fans. Now, while previous studies have suggested there's a link between sporty event and cardiac incidents, this is the first time that anyone's actually bothered to look at hockey. So what they found, compared to just sitting at home on your own, watching a less dangerous or high-tension activity, there was about a 75% increase in heart rate from just from watching a very, very stressful or intense hockey game. And that's watching it just on TV. If you go all the way to the ground, that goes from a 75% bump in heart rate to a 110% bump in heart rate. Because if you're obviously at the ground watching a game live, it's incredibly stressful. So overall, that's about a 92% or almost double a heart rate increase across all spectators. Which suggests that, obviously then, watching sport can have a significant risk for your heart. If you are at risk of a cardiac event, cardiac disease, or have a weaker heart, then watching an intense sporting event may not be for you, or you may need to watch your heart rate. It's not just that your your team is losing so you're emotionally stressed. There's actually also a physiological increase in your heart rate, a real change. It can trigger adverse cardiovascular events in a population. If you applied a 92% doubling of heart rate to just a general populace, that has some pretty severe public health implications. Now, obviously, one would assume that the most heart-pounding moments come right towards the end of a game. But by actually studying the heart rate over time for the duration of a game, what they found was very interesting. Peak heart rates occurred in spectators, most frequently during any scoring opportunity. 
for or against. So that means any time there was a chance for a goal to be scored, heart rates were up, which is makes sense from a perspective of excitement and also fear if your team's on the receiving end. So it's not the outcome of the game. It's not the win or loss. It's when there's a really exciting thing happening on the ground. That's where you get the emotional stress response, the physiological response. So when they're in that high stakes, high intensity segments, like mini like sections, 10 or so seconds of the game, that's where the heart rates are the fastest. Now, it's interesting because you'd think that maybe if you're a more passionate hockey fan, then maybe you have a more intense physiological response. So the researchers asked just that question. They surveyed their participants for the fan passion score, basically a method for calculating algorithmically how invested a person is in the team. Now, this has been done in other studies for soccer fans, but in hockey, they didn't seem to be able to predict any type of correlation between a more passionate fan having a more intense physiological cardiovascular response. It seemed to be pretty much just stagnant or the same for super fans and regular fans. Then again, you already have to be some level of a fan if you're watching the game on TV or at the ground. So what does all this mean? Well, if you are someone who has a cardiovascular risk, maybe coronal artery disease or maybe some kind of inflammation or vasoconstriction, basically, if you're at risk from a particular traumatic heart event, then attending a sports game, particularly tense one, maybe like a final or something where you're incredibly emotionally invested, is something where you'll need to take care particularly during high-intensity moments, not necessarily towards the end, but during those scoring opportunities, that is when you're most at risk of a cardiovascular event. So if you are at risk already, then maybe you want to bear that in mind before you attend that game. That doesn't mean you can't watch sport anymore. You just need to be wary that your heart rate will be elevated during that period, whether you know it or not. So you're at greater risk during that. So keep that in mind next time you're watching a sporting event and your heart racing. The people in the crowds and watching a home and TV are also just as risk as people on the field. Maybe not exactly the same, but there's a lot more people outside there than there is on the field. And that's a great piece of medical research being done at students from Royal West Academy in Montreal, together with researchers from the Montreal Heart Institute at the University of Montreal. If you ask a doctor, or maybe a biologist, they will tell you that, yes, look, undertaking physical activities such as sport can have positive health benefits. Yes, it can improve your general health and well-being, but they're not going to say that it helps you turn back the clock, make you younger, or prevent you from aging. See, this is what happens when you ask a mathematician and a physicist the same question as a medical professional or a biologist. Because in the minds of mathematicians and physicists, Certain physical activities, in particular something like high alpine skiing, well, that can literally help you turn back time. Well, maybe not turn back time, but at least delay aging. And if you're wondering what exactly is going on here, 
and are a bit concerned about all of this, well, don't worry. Some University of Oslo researchers have got you covered. And it all comes back to, of course, Einstein's theory of special relativity, formulated first in 1905. And look, in the 1905 special relativity and the 1915 general relativity theories, there's one of these concepts that keeps coming up time and time again. And that is, if you've heard of the twin experiment, the same thing applies. It's if you have a twin and send one one here on Earth, leave them just to experience time normally, and then send one far away, maybe into space, and accelerate them to incredibly fast speeds, approaching that of the speed of light, then what will happen is that the one on Earth will age normally, but for the one travelling near the speed of light, their experience of time will slow down as a result of this. And basically, it applies not just to, well, obviously, the speed plays a big part there, but your height as well. Because when you think about it, when you're on the ground, you are at one point on Earth spinning around, but as you go higher up on the Earth, you're actually spinning around slightly faster. Now, we're not talking huge amounts, about 100 microseconds per decade, if you're over 3,000 meters, but enough if you're a mathematician to make some pretty outlandish claims. And this is where the researchers from Oslo made a couple of assumptions. For example, if you're a Norwegian, like they are, and you love to ski a lot, well, okay, great, then you're already undertaking an activity that is fast, around 100 kilometers an hour, and the duration of one of those events, a typical downhill skiing race, is about two minutes long. So each time you undertake one of those races, you gain about half a picosecond compared to someone on ground level. And if you have a career of racing, maybe you take part in a thousand races over your lifetime. That person will have aged slower by half a nanosecond, which is all right, but not a great advantage. It all changes, though, if you're just a regular recreational skier. If you have decades of running and skiing, you wouldn't gain just a nanosecond, you gain a lot more than that. Sure, your average running speed is only down to 12 kilometers an hour, but you require a lot more hours of training. 5,000 hours of, of skiing or running activity in a high elevation would do that. And that's achievable, relatively achievable, in the average lifetime of a Nordic person. And that means you could gain yourself, without having to be an elite athlete, around one nanosecond or half a nanosecond of extra lifetime, or really just, you know, you've aged slightly less. Now, this is a pretty esoteric case put together by Aswin Sekar and Amal Paduaran, who are both high-energy particle physicists at the University of Wisconsin and the University of Oslo. But it, it comes back to an interesting concept that this thought experiment dreamed up by Einstein of these two twins, one travelling around the Earth and the other one travelling back at home, about how it could be applied to a regular mundane activity like skiing. Now, the same thing also applies to pilots. They're flying pretty fast at very high elevations. So they actually do age slightly less than everybody else. But there are also risks and health risks by being in a confined space, sitting in a confined seat for a long period of time. So any other gains that you might gain there in terms of extra lifetime doesn't mean necessarily that it increases your life expectancy. So they don't immediately follow. But, you know, undertaking activities like, well, you know, skiing or running or training at a high altitude, that could be also beneficial to just like the doctor and the biologist said at the start of this segment. So it just goes to show that there's some interesting applications of physics and mathematics that also could have real-world implications and give you that half a nanosecond of extra lifetime.
Now every time we have a large major sporting event, we have to consider whether or not these athletes have competed fairly. That is, barring all rules of the competition, ignoring differences in clothing and so on, have these athletes had an unfair advantage? Have they broken the rules, cheated the system, gained an extra edge that nobody else is allowed to do? And the pretty dangerous one of those is doping. Now, doping can take a variety of different formats, and we've talked about doping and performance-enhancing drugs in sport on this program a few times. But really, how widespread is it? Well, a group of recent research, led by Harrison G. Pope, who's the Director of Biological Psychiatry Laboratory at McLean Hospital in Belmont, and Professor Rolf Ulrich from the University of Tübingen, Germany, have worked together with an international group of seven other authors and conducted a study on behalf of the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. And this study looked at a variety of different events over time to see just how many athletes were potentially doping and what athletes were missed. I mean, obviously, cheating is always going to be one step ahead of curve of the testers. But this study found that doping is far more common in professional sports than rates suggested by test results. The study itself looked at, in particular, events in the 2011 International Association of Athletic Federations, IAAF, World Championships in 2011, and the Pan-Arab Games, also in the same year. And what they found is in the IAAF event, this Athletic Federation event, 30% of the athletes were found to be doping. And in the Pan-Arab Games in 2011, 45%. Now, in terms of detection, at the time of those events, only 5.5% of biological tests showed positive for doping results. And in the Pan-Arab Games, which did have a higher result, there were 3.6% of actual successful detections. So what they did differently here is they looked backwards rather than what the simple testings that had done at the time. And they used effectively a randomized response method to question around a total of 2,000 167 participants at the World Championship in Daegu in South Korea and the Pan-Arab Games in Doha and Qatar. And they asked them if they'd taken drugs or at any other point in time in diff- previous competitions. And they've taken it before the competitions rather than at the competitions themselves. And this gave the athletes some anonymity and they said that they wouldn't actually have any negative consequences if they actually answered truthfully. And they did this to try and encourage people to be actually truthful. How much was cheating widespread? They really wanted to know quite legitimately an answer to that question. And this randomized response method is used for sensitive topics. And and if you ask them flat out, face to face, you you get the socially desirable response. You wouldn't actually admit, yeah, actually I cheated four or five times. So giving them a nominacy gives them protection to answer honestly. And it also provides an ability to say, is the testing method actually working? So in this study, six interviewers who collectively spoke 10 languages attended the competitions and spoke to this large number of athletes. They personally asked 2,320 athletes to participate. Now, only 2,100-ish actually said yes, but that's a pretty high success rate, 90%. Then they were given on a mobile device, and there were a couple of questions to answer unobtrusive ones first about birth date and so on, and then asking whether they'd engaged in banned doping behavior in the past 12 months. And the two questions were selected at random. So it weren't, wasn't necessarily they're going to be asked about doping, but they, so they could have the potential not to be asked, 
But that gave them a, a, an element of, okay, just because you participate in this trial doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be asked about doping. So that helped to give them a bit more anonymity. So what's so fascinating is that at these events that they were asking about, there was only an average detection rate of 1% to 3%. Now, if you use the biological passport method, which is better than just simple blood test or urine test, which is only scoring a 1% to 3% detection rate, the biological passport basically tracks the athlete's medical data with randomized inspections over a long period of time. Using something like that, the detection rate was about 14%. The biological passport is really quite difficult to enforce as well and a very extensive procedure. So it's good, but certainly better than just the simple blood and urine testing, but not perfect, especially if we know that it's only picking up just under half, if not a third, of all the actual cheating that's going on at some of these events. So what can we do about it? And that's what WADA and other athletics federations and bodies are actually trying to look at. Is there a way that we can better test? The biological passport is one such method, but there's certainly ways that we can improve this. There's some great research conducted at a McLean University and published in the recent journal, Sports Medicine, 2017. side to this question is then, if doping is so rife, what is to be done about it? Well, there's a proposal put forward by the International Amateur Athletics Federation, the IAAF, to address its very complicated and, let's be frank about this, poor performance in enforcing anti-doping measures. And they've suggested that, well, maybe we could do something to rectify the past results. And the European Athletics Council have suggested that a simple fix to this would be basically to disregard all records, all athletic records, world records, and so on, since 2005. And the logic being that in 2005, urine and blood samples have been checked for doping and have been stored in the results. So you can go back and check and analyze if you wanted to. But it gives you a starting point, a clean point. Yes, okay, those methods are still only 1% to 3% effective potentially, but it's better than nothing. And if you're going to have a start of a clean error, you may as well pick that date. But a recent collection of experts have published an editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that says, look, this is not necessarily going to be a solution to this problem. They call it overly simplistic and ill-conceived. Now, why this would be so problematic is that, well, it's a double punishment if you're a clean athlete. Not only have you beaten anyone who's doping or cheated, even if you now beat them, your world record or result is going to be disregarded. So effectively, the ones who are cheating have won twice. Now, there's all a number of other factors. As we spoke about before, the effectiveness of blood and urine tests is not particularly great. This cross-contamination, poor storage, and even duration of, and degradation of samples is going to become more and more difficult, especially as time passes. So picking 2005 maybe not be the best example. 
And it's clear that doping hasn't finished yet. Uh, we, we haven't beaten it, and it's going to be a never-ending battle. So trying to say this date from here on in, we're clean, is perhaps a bit simplistic in our understanding. And these results, as spoken about previously, are a good recommend of how that may not be as simple as we think. So whilst it might be tempting to say, yes, we now have the biological passport, or we have all these testing, and now our sport is clean, you have to remember that people who are cheating using performance-handing drugs are always one or two steps ahead of the curve. So trying to declare some clean date only punishes those athletes who have done well against the cheaters and doesn't mean that you've actually managed to prove any serious point. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Whether it be slowing the ageing process nanosecond at a time to helping make sure you don't have a heart attack at a hockey game, we find out about a lot of the ways that help change our lives using sport. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.